0: Thank you, Nathan. Thank you, Mark. It's good to pray together and be together, isn't it, church? All right. You know the drill. Colossians chapter 2. We are going to give our attention to two verses tonight. Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. All right. We need more woo-hooing during preaching. You You see, Mark? More woohooing, yep. So let's let's look at this text together. I'll, I'll just read these two verses. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Let me pray for our time together. Father, we ask that your word would be received in our hearts with power and with humility. Help us to have eyes to see what it is you're saying and what you intend to communicate to us. But Father, I pray that this would not be a time merely of sharing information, but Lord, that you would transform us. Let these words grow up in our hearts to produce action and obedience, and faith, so that everyone would see that, as we have already been reminded, that you are God most high. So, Father, to that end, do what no human can do, and move and speak among us tonight, we pray. Amen. Well, I love to hike. I love especially to hike on the appalachian trail i 've enjoyed it ever since ever since I was a boy, and as i 've gotten older, one of the things I like to do is to share that joy of hiking with other people right and you can fit your hobby or the things that you get excited about into this but isn 't it fun when you enjoy something to introduce someone else to you know to, to that activity and to get them Excited about it, and when you take folks on the Appalachian Trail for the first time, there's not a lot of information you need, right? You're walking, right? Um, so it, it's not a complex thing. But I love to take people out and just like tell them all these different facts about the the fabled historic Appalachian Trail. You may, if you've never been, if you're not familiar with it, we live just. I got to be honest. When I first started praying about the job at uh trinity three and a half years ago i very quickly googled how far is trinity from the appalachian trail (laughs) actually specifically like roan mountain on the appalachian trail um but, but, but if you think about the Appalachian Trail, you may not know. It's, 21, it's more than 2,100 miles. It begins in, in, in Georgia and goes all the way up to Maine. And it's, just a, it's a walking trail, mostly a mountainous walking trail. And each spring, generally, there are thousands of crazy people who try to walk the entire Appalachian Trail. We call them through hikers because they're hiking all the way through. People like me, I go hike 15 miles, I come home to my bed and my family and my food and my job, right? And then these other crazy people, they start and they just keep walking until they get to the end right? They're through hikers. Now, only about 25% of them finish the trail, and there's been this explosion of, of through hiking over the last couple of years. But it's a really simple trail to navigate, right? You don't really need a compass. You don't need maps, things like that, because all along the way, there are white blazes, right? These four-inch Uh, white stretches of paint that are painted all over the place that mark the trail on trees, on rocks, on uh, fence posts and stumps. All you have to do is find the trail and then follow the blazes, right? And uh, it's, it's it's not difficult. You're simply walking, right? You keep putting one foot in front of the other. But as simple as hiking is, experienced hikers, you know, even hikers in the AT, even through hikers will know that if you hike long enough, in spite of the blazes, you will get lost, right? You'll, you will miss the blazes. Several years ago, I read the story of a, uh, a, this, uh, a, a girl I went to college with. I didn't really know her, but she lives in Asheville, and she set the record for at, the, at the time for the fastest hike from Georgia all the way up to Maine. She hiked the entire 2,100 miles in 47 days, right? 46 days, 11 hours. That is an average of 47 miles per day. It's an incredible feat. And in her book, she tells stories, and she had all these people, you know, helping her and like making sure, carrying her food and, you know, all that. But she tells stories in her book about how she would be hiking and she would get off the trail, Sometime, one time she started hiking in the wrong direction. She got so turned around because of fog or snow or, or rain, distraction, whatever it is. And you see, and I've experienced that on the trail. I won't tell you that story because it's embarrassing. Uh, but the, but the, the point is, is that if you don't pay really close attention all the time, and if you don't keep putting one foot in front of the other, you can end up totally off course or even walking in the wrong direction. Hiking is, and is frustrating for Jennifer, because her record was beaten by a professional ultra runner just a few years ago, Scott Jurek. He only beat her by three hours, and if she hadn't gotten turned around on the trail, he would not have beaten her record, right? But you've got to keep moving. In the Bible, the Christian life is often described as walking, continually walking, one foot after another. Not just, you know, hiking on the weekends, like me. Not starting and stopping. Not hiking and then turning around and going back the other direction. Not saying you want to hike, right? You ever met those folks? They, they say they are a hiker, but they don't hike or say they ride bikes or whatever. Right? But actually doing it. Actually following Jesus, placing one foot in front of another to follow our master's lead. There are thousands of hikers every year who begin the, the journey and who say they're going to through hike, but only about a quarter of them keep on walking. Well, that's what this text is about tonight. Continually walking, following, keep going, putting another foot in front of the other. you see I think it's an important text for us because there is a great danger I fear that the number of people who a number of Christians who claim to follow Jesus but then don't continually follow Jesus is terrifyingly high and I think that's the main idea of this passage tonight it is about continuing to follow Jesus now we're starting this, uh, this tonight in verse 6, and, and in doing so, we are moving into the very heart of this letter. Verses 6 through about 15 are, are generally the theological, the high point, the center of what Paul is doing. And we have to remember, we've got to keep in mind why Paul is, is writing. Remember, we've said in the past that Paul is writing to, to help warn the Colossians about danger, a theological danger, which is subtle but powerful that, that false teachers had been claiming. And the best I can understand is that it was something like this, that, that you need something other than Jesus for the Christian life. Something more than Jesus to have a vibrant spiritual life. You, yeah, you may need Jesus, and Jesus is good, and you can have Jesus, but you also, if you really want to be a super Christian, you need more. Whether it's some secret wisdom, some unique spiritual experience, maybe you've got to be real smart, go to lots of school, whatever it is. Paul's bottom line is, Jesus alone is enough. And that's how he counters what's going on. In verse in chapter one, we've seen Paul, he's answering this by establishing the truth that is the central truth of Colossians. Jesus is supreme over all. There is no one better, there's nothing higher, there's nothing more interesting, more beautiful, more majestic, more powerful. He is the highest, the greatest, and the best. And he alone is the ultimate source of authority and of joy and of wisdom, and of creative power. He is Lord, which means that he rules. And since he's Lord, and since he rules, all must submit to him. You see that as this text begins, we we see in verse 6 that Paul uses the word, therefore, and he's linking what he's getting ready to say with what he has already said about Christ, which he's been talking about for for a whole chapter. It's like, notice carefully what he says. Look again down at verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. Alright? So Paul is saying, okay... You've received Christ, so follow him. Walk on the path that he has called you to walk on. Let's think about that word received there for a moment, right? As you have received, You've bought in. You have bought into the Christian faith, the Christian teaching. You've bought into who Jesus claims that He is, what He said that He has done, that He has died for sinners, that He has risen from the dead, that He rules over all things. You, if you've bought into all that, which you have to if you are a Christian, He is saying if you've bought into all that, then continue to walk, follow continually. It's not enough to take one step, right? You could go to Springer Mountain in Georgia, which is the beginning of the Appalachian Trail. It's not enough to take one or two or 50 or 200 steps on the trail. You've got to continue on the trail. You've claimed to have received Jesus, right? This is very Southern Baptist kind of language, right? We are familiar with that, receiving Jesus, you claim to agree with what we have said about him, what the apostles have said about him, it's as if Paul's saying, all right, now prove it. Walk in this. But you have to pay close attention to what's going on here. Because if you are born again, it is not simply that you accept Jesus into your hearts, right, which is probably not the most helpful phrase. It's, it's, It's that we receive him as Lord. There's a difference. Receiving Him as Lord. This means that we are willingly submitting to Him as the sovereign ruler of our lives. You cannot be a Christian. I don't care what you say you believe about a historic person, I don't care what you say about your sin or the cross or the resurrection. If you don't submit to Jesus as Lord, you have not repented. And you do not have genuine faith. That's what it means. Look at how the text says, receiving Christ Jesus the Lord. You see, look, look down at that phrase. Paul says, he, he calls Jesus, Christ Jesus the Lord. Now, I know in English, that looks like a very common sort of phrase that we would see all over the New Testament, right? We, we're, we're used to seeing Christ and Jesus and Lord Fit together, but the way this is phrased in, in the original language is, is uncommon, it's not the normal way that, that Paul or most of the New Testament writers would, would refer to Jesus. And, and, and the point of that is that the, the phrase emphasizes the Lord, right? He's saying, If you had, as you have received Christ Jesus as the Lord, if you accept Him as the Lord so walk in him. The walking is connected to the accepting and the receiving as Christ the Lord. Receiving Jesus is not merely accepting some facts about Jesus. It is accepting him as Lord. It's submitting It means that the government of Nathan, which I have long been fond of and still set up from time to time, where Nathan is ruler, where Nathan calls the shots, where Nathan chooses how to live and where Nathan chooses how other people should live, and you know, that's dead. That has to be dead. If if Christ is, there can't be two lords. Either Christ is Lord or we're submitting to someone or something else. Christ is Lord. He's the Lord of Christians, so we submit to him. So what he says, it goes. In my judgment, I think this is the greatest crisis facing the American church, particularly in the South. We are, broadly speaking, deeply confused about what it means to follow Jesus, to be a Christian. Being a Christian is about following Jesus. The late Billy Graham put this so well. He said no, man can be said, no man can be said to be truly converted to Christ who has not bent his will to Christ. He may give intellectual assent to the claims of Christ and may have had an emotional religious experience. However, he is not truly converted until he has surrendered his will to Christ as Lord, Savior, and Savior and master. If you follow Christ, you have a master as if you were a slave. Paul's big point in this passage is, okay, you who claim to follow Jesus, you don't need any special wisdom. You don't need any fancy knowledge. You've got to understand who Jesus is and what that means for your daily life and then submit to him right? That's what we saw in chapter one. It's all about the wisdom is understanding who Jesus is and what that means for your daily life, and then you live your life accordingly. And here's how. Paul is getting ready, uh, not just in these verses, but in the next two chapters, to give lots and lots and lots of instructions on how to follow Jesus. There are lots of commands coming in the next two chapters of Colossians. I stopped counting at 27 over the next two chapters uh, where Paul is giving what we, you know, imperatives, what your high school teacher would have called it, right? Commands. You do this. And if your Lord says do this, what do you do? Right? You do this. In our home, there has been a streak of arguing from our kids, right? Right? They have different ideas about what to eat and when to go to bed and what to wear and, and what to do with the wasp spray and that sort of thing. And we are continually reminding them, you submit to your parents. This is not a discussion. I think a lot of us as Christians, we are sympathetic to that as parents, but we are not very sympathetic to that and how we submit to God. He is Lord. It's easy to see what Paul's doing here, right? He's saying, you claim to follow Jesus. You claim that Jesus is actually your Lord. Okay, here's what you're going to do. 27 commands, right? Go, for, go prove it. When Haley and I lived in Myrtle Beach, we, before we had kids, we were in a running group. You've heard me talk about the group before. And we would train together for these big, long races. Um, sometimes uh, really long races. And when you run for four, we do a four-hour training run. It's nice to do it with other people, right? So you don't like fall asleep or quit or crawl into a Krispy Kreme and set up there, you know? Um, and, and, and it was really fun to just have this community and to encourage one another and that sort of thing. But there were some fringe members of the running group that, that wouldn't come very often, but, we, you know, we knew of them. Well, there's this, there's this one uh, runner who had this very popular running blog, right? Now, if you're familiar with how the internet works, um, you can make a lot of money just by having people visit your website. Doesn't matter what's on it. It's just a lot of people need to go there. That's all that matters. Well, she somehow had created one of the most profitable running blogs, period, right? She has been on a top 10 list for a long time. And so she was getting all these, all these sponsorships and all these race entries. And eventually she started making money by writing about her experience. It was called Run Faster Mommy. she had had two uh, twins and had started running. And so, if you, she had a very compelling writing style, and, and she would write about her running adventures, right? And I would read the blog, right, because it was very interesting, and then, you know, she had this very, like, bubbly personality online, and it was, just, it was just really fun. And, you know, so, but we were excited that she was going to come run with the group, kind of like a celebrity, I guess. The problem was is she like never showed up and she would say she's going to come, she would like help organize stuff and then she wouldn't come or she'd skip about three quarters of them or, and then I remember one time she showed up to a, a, a training run, it was supposed to be a, a, a pretty long like 17 or 18 mile run and she kind of hung towards the back and after five miles she ran back to the car and just went home, right, and, which might be a great idea. But but she just didn't show up but on her blog she was like this amazing like runner girl and we would read this thing and we're like who is this like this this girl doesn't even run like you know and so uh yeah yeah but on her blog she's this huge inspiration to people and 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 she you know, she was making quite a bit of money talking about what to us were these imaginary running experiences. She could talk to talk, it seemed. She's a nice girl and I don't, I don't know, I, whatever. You know, she could talk the talk, but she couldn't walk the, or run the run, right? She, she just, she just didn't, right? It's one thing to have a runner blog where you say, I'm like this hardcore runner mom. And it's another thing to like actually run, right? To live the life and then to, you know, to talk about all the races and all the training you do, but if you don't really run, you're kind of fake. And if you don't continue to run, you're fake. That's what it's like to follow Jesus. If you claim that you've received him as your Lord, so run, walk, and keep walking. In verses six and seven, we get a snapshot really struggle to figure out how to describe this. I guess it's, it's what it looks like to follow Jesus. What it looks like to follow the white blazes along the path. What it looks like to put one foot in front of another. Paul is giving us a few of the white blazes, a few, a few markers of how to continue walking. Of course, we need to remember walking refers to our daily conduct, right? That's not my illustration. That's That's an inspired illustration that's all over the New Testament. It's the way that you walk is the way that you live. And and I think the one step in front of the other illustration is helpful because often we think about our spiritual lives not as an every moment sort of thing, but as these big bursts, right? Or maybe a Sunday morning and a big weekly thing or like these highs and lows. Yet if Christ is Lord, He is Lord over every moment and every stray thought. So I think Paul is describing how the daily conduct of your life will look. What sorts of things will be happening. And he uses four different words. If you like grammar, or if the one of you likes grammar, they're all participles, right? They're, they're, they're kind of grouped together, and they describe the walk of a Christian. So we'll look at those four, those four descriptions together. The first thing we can see is that Christians are nourished by Christ, Look there, you can see the ESV translates that first word, rooted. Rooted. If we were to be more literal, we could say something like this, you have been rooted. You've been rooted, right? And this is all in light of the fact, okay, you've received Jesus, and then it's talking about all these implications and these things that are, that are going on. Paul's saying you've been rooted. It's an event that's already taken place, But the action is continuing, right? The consequences are still unfolding. It is still, it's still happening in real time. You have in Christ been eternally planted in him. Which gives us a great deal of safety and comfort, doesn't it? But you'll notice this is a passive verb. What that means is you didn't do the action. Who do you think did it? God did it. God did this work. God is the gardener, right? God did it. God has firmly fixed you in him. It's a relief to me that he is the gardener. I'm not a very effective gardener. And Jesus or God is far more trustworthy and far more effective than we ourselves are. Your salvation does not depend on how, what kind of decisions you make, but on God, who has planted or rooted you, this word is not used very often, but it gives us a picture of a gardener firmly establishing or planting or fixing a plant in in, in the ground. But I think probably the most uh, poignant implication of what's going on here is that Christians think about what roots do. Roots they they hold you and hold a plant in place, but they also suck up nourishment and water, right, to sustain the life of a plant, right? Our roots are tapped into Christ, into a water source, and into a nutrient source, so we don't shrivel up and die. You ever met folks like that who have shriveled up and died spiritually? Jesus spoke about soil or seeds that were planted around rocky soil that grew up and then couldn't last. Right? This word rooted, is, it's closely associated with this next word. They're really closely connected together. That, that word you rooted and built up in him. That's perhaps the second description we'll see. We could, say, we could say this, right? Looking at the word built up in him, that Christians grow. Christians grow in Christ. To be built up in him is a word, that's, that's something we're much more familiar with, right? It's a consequence of the first action, the being rooted, right? A plant that is rooted then does what? It takes up all the nourishment of the water and then it grows, right? It, 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 it grows, it gets bigger, it gets healthier, and it constantly produces more fruit. Paul perhaps may have been thinking about the imagery in Psalm chapter 1, right? This picture of a tree, planted, right? Rooted by streams of water and it yields fruit and season and it prospers no matter what is going on. But there's other times where Paul is using this, this metaphor, this, uh, this built-up metaphor, because that's what this is, right? That's not a literal phrase. He's using this to, to talk more, less about gardening and more about construction, right? more about construction. It's a construction metaphor. You take something and you build it up. You have a stack of Legos. If you were to build on those Legos, that stack of Legos gets taller or bigger or wider or something. So you add to it. There's, there's an adding, not a subtraction. You take something and you build it up, right? It's, it's especially referring to building upon something else. Right? This, is not found, this is not the first work, this is additional work. This is a renovation, this is an add-on, right? this is building on top of something. There's a foundation that's already been laid, and so from there you build up, right? You build upon the house. In Colossians, Paul speaks frequently of the tradition, right? What has been, this language of having been received, We won't go into this much tonight, but it's how the message of the gospel of Christ was passed. It was passed from apostles and teachers and pastors and other faithful Christians. And what Paul is doing, he's saying, okay, God has used someone else, whether it's Epaphras or one of the other apostles or or an ordinary Christian, and that other person, let's say it's Epaphras, has laid a foundation. And that's great. Now go grow, get bigger, get taller, get wider, get stronger, right? There's already been progress. Now let's have some more progress. Paul has spoken like this before. Do you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 3? This will be familiar. He says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. All right? you see this picture of Paul saying, I laid a foundation and someone else is building. So you see this growth, this progress, this increase in maturity and in faith and in substance and in obedience in the life of these Christians. In this particular instance, Paul is speaking about Christian workers who are working to grow other Christians, which we talked about last week or last time, didn't we? And the lesson is that Christ is the foundation upon which a beautiful structure is to grow. It's a radical image. It's an image of constant change, of continual process. You never arrive in the Christian life. Doesn't no matter how mature you are, how long you've been walking with Jesus, how great of a Sunday school teacher you are, how much Bible study you do, how much you pray, how many verses you've memorized, none of you have not arrived. We've said this many times before, to be a Christian is to grow. Not to grow to a point and stop, but to grow and to drop water, to grow continually. And that's part of what's happening here. And there's a great temptation, I think, especially for those of us who have perhaps walked with Jesus for a long time or perhaps you feel like you've grown more than the average Christian or more than the average church member. It's very tempting to to be content with your spiritual progress, isn't it? To get lazy, to lose that drive, but we can't do that. We take this seriously. I love how this image is fitting with this, the theme in this text of continuing, right? It's, the emphasis is it's adding to, it's making something better and bigger and taller or stronger, right? It doesn't matter how short or how tall the structure is, it's being built upon, right? It's not about the starting place, the foundation that's already been laid. We're talking about the process. So, for example, if you were an engineer and you were somehow tasked to take the Empire State Building and make it taller, right, to add 14 more floors, I have no idea how you would do that. But you would have to figure out ways to make the Empire State Building taller. It's already really tall. You're making it taller. I'd probably put a taller antenna on it. I think that'd be cool, right? But then, let's say we put the taller antenna on it. How would it keep growing? It's got to get taller, it's, just, it's continual growth. I'm sorry for all the exercise illustrations, but let's, let's, let's put, think about it like this, right? Let's take another illustration for the exercise world. Let's say there's three people in the room, and they all want to improve at doing push-ups, right? They want to improve on their current fitness. They're all in different places. Let's say person one can do 25 push-ups, strong guy. Person two can do 10 Person three can do zero, right? So how would growth for each of these three people look like? What would it look like? Well, for person one doing 25, what would growth be? 26. Okay, if he could do 26, let's say she. If she could do 26, what would growth look like? 30 or whatever, right? But what would growth look like for the second person? 11. What would growth look like for the third person? 1. Right? It's, gro- it's really, it's, this is actually really help, it's important to, to be successful, right? To, you don't compare yourself to someone else. That's just discouraging. You're trying to be a better version of yourself. You focus on growing, on, on doing better. But, of course, in the Christian life, this isn't like fitness where the burden lies all on you. In the Christian life, God is doing the growing God is doing the building, and God is doing the improving. God is working. Sure, we're called to cooperate, but God is the architect. He is the constructor, the, the builder. This metaphor of building, this edification metaphor, it's a favorite of the New Testament writers. Jude speaks of building, but he connects it Um, In Jude chapter 20, uh, verse 20, to to staying attached in Christ. Listen to verse 20. He says, but you, beloved, listen, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. Jude is reminding us, he speaks almost like the imagery that is used in John chapter 15 of a vine that is connected to a branch. Or a, a branch that's connected to a vine, right? How does how does the how does the branch have life? How does it produce fruit? By staying in with the whole vine. Staying in Jesus. Growth and success come. From staying and continuing in Jesus. Total dependence upon Christ. Remaining in him. And there you will grow. Christ is our only source of spiritual nourishment. And we must plant our roots deep in him. A third thing to notice here is that Christians are grounded by their faith. Grounded by their faith. This next verb that Paul uses to describe the Christian walk is established in faith. Again, like the previous descriptions, it's passive and it's continuing, right? Meaning that God has established and now God is continually doing the establishing. To be grounded or to be established, it's a result of being rooted and of being built up in Christ. Part of that gospel growth is increasing in firmness of faith. Think about how this works. As you grow... You grow increasingly confident. Your faith hardens. It gets solid. Your faith in who Jesus is and all that means for your life. Your faith in your position in Christ. We've talked about that in the past. Your faith and confidence in the promises that have been given to you. Right? We all believe, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But ha- have you ever felt alone, forsaken, afraid? Our faith needs to grow we all can grow increasingly confident that you can run to the Lord with your sin and that you can find forgiveness that you can run to him when you're in trouble it's an image of your faith firming up getting harder like a rock that somehow could grow harder over time God is working to make your faith sturdy or more sturdy if that's the right word I think it's possible that you can have saving faith that is weak. Do we not often say, just as Thomas did, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief? God delights in our faith, faith that saves, but he wants to establish you even more. That all the content that you profess, that you and I profess to believe... That we would work in every that it would that that content would work its way into every nook and cranny of our heart, every corner of our calendar, every part of our checkbook, into every relationship, in every minute, every word, and every thought. Jesus wants and Jesus deserves total dominion, total domination. He wants to rule everything, and he wants his people to trust him in everything. We need faith that is harder. I can't help but think of a boxer who trains crazily by having his trainer punch him. I had to watch the scene from Rocky 2, as any kid of the 80s would, right? Rocky 2, where he's, he's doing, if Rocky's a boxer... He's the boxer. Okay. All right. All right. All right, all right. So Sylvester Stallone is, is doing these sit-ups. And every time he would come up, you know, he does the Stallone thing and he looks all cool. And then he, every time he would go down, his trainer punches him in the stomach. Right? Sit-ups are awful. And so he's doing a sit-up and he gets to the top. He goes back down and the, pun- and the trainer hits him as hard as he can in the stomach, right? And the idea, I suppose, I can't imagine that this is successful. I think they still, I think boxers still do this. The idea is that you, if you harden your stomach in training, you'll be better prepared to take on the punches to the midsection in a fight. You see, many of us have faith, but don't take punches very well. We trust all that God says and we believe his word, but then when life punches us in the stomach, we crumble to the mat. But God wants to toughen our faith up, to establish and to strengthen us. The end game is for your faith to be totally rock solid and he will complete this at the moment of your glorification. But until then, he is working to make us totally confident in the Lord. This phrase, just as you were taught, emphasizes that, that growing in your faith is not so much about learning new advanced things, but practicing what you've already been taught. I would venture to say, we don't need to learn much more. We need to practice. We've used our ears a lot. We need to use our feet to practice what we've learned. A final thing to notice is that Christians practice thanksgiving. Up until this point, all the words have been passive, assuming that God is the primary actor. You've been firmly rooted, been built up, you have been established, and these things are all continuing, but now we have one active verb, which means, Christian, be thankful. Abound in thanksgiving. This is in response to the previous verbs that, that we've just seen. Paul, as, as if Paul's saying, hey, in light of all this, Gush in thanksgiving to God, overflow in Thanksgiving now back in chapter one, verse twelve, uh, we talked about Thanksgiving quite a bit, and so i 'm not going to redo all that, but I thought what I would do tonight before we close is to read this is uh, you hear me talk about this all the time it 's one of my favorite books, the Gospel primer primer wherever you 're from and I want to read a little section here about Thanksgiving. just listen. As I read this, this section is called Thankfulness Enriched by Relief. The more absorbed I am in the gospel, the more grateful I become in the midst of my circumstances, whatever they may be. Viewing life's blessings as water in a drinking cup, I know that I could discontentedly focus on the half of the cup that seems empty, or I could gratefully focus on the half that is full. Certainly, the latter approach is the better of the two. Yet the gospel cultivates within me even richer gratitude than this. Listen to this. The gospel reminds me that the very first thing that I actually deserve from God is a cup full, churning with the torments of his wrath. This is the cup that would be mine to drink if I were given what I deserve today, each day. With this understanding in mind, I see that to be handed a completely empty cup from God would be cause enough for infinite gratitude. If that, if there was in that cup the tiniest drop of blessing contained in an otherwise empty cup, I should be blown away by the unbelievable kindness of God toward me. That God, in fact, has given me a cup that is full of of every spiritual blessing in Christ, and that it is without a single drop of wrath leaves me dumbfounded and with that, and full of inexpressible joy. So as for my specific earthly circumstance, whether I'm in want or have plenty, I can see in them always infinite improvements upon the hell I deserve. That is the heart of a thankful Christian. When we're thankful, we are giving God all the credit that he deserves for all the good things that he has done, or at least the things that we know about. It's, it's, the, work, it's the life's work of a Christian, praising God in thanksgiving. But just as the primer mentioned, the most, ha- the most thankful heart is very aware of how little it deserves. So in our thanksgiving, we're constantly rehearsing, God is good, I am a sinner, but God has been good to me. God is good, I am a sinner, but God has been good to me. Let me add a phrase. God is good, I am a sinner, but God has been good to me. Wow. Let's go and live like that. Wow. Let me close this in prayer. Father, would you give us a new sense of wow, that whatever our circumstances are, that we would marvel at your kindness and your goodness to us, especially in Christ Jesus, who has given and provided for us all spiritual blessings. Help us to be a people who live in and walk in your grace, completely dependent upon you for all of our growth. Help us to trust you, we pray in your name. Amen. You're dismissed, church. Go in peace.